Hi, hi, hi there, my little Devochkas and Shalaviks. Welly, 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 well. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Me and my droogs, Shara and Ben, videoed a bit of film called A Clockwork Orange that's like real horror show. Directed by the master himself, one Stanley K. This cine is all about the two Disney activities of youth, like the old in-out, in-out, tongue-chucking and ultra-violence, and, of course, the state's responsibility within a free society. You didn't think I was going to do the entire podcast in a clockwork orange slang, did you? Uh, if you're new to this podcast, uh, we take good horror films and we dissect it. We talk about its themes, the filmmaking, its philosophy, and this film is rich in all of the subjects we can discuss. We'll talk about sexuality, free will, the state's responsibility in a free society, and try to get at all the elements that make this film, in my opinion, one of the most important films of the 20th century. So we'll start with some general thoughts. Shara, then my droogs, uh, what did you think of A Clockwork Orange? Well, I chose the film uh, and I, I thought it would be really fun to get into some deep discussions about uh, the government and about prison and about youth and about, well, there's a lot of other really horrible conversations that might come up you know, such as rape and how we treat homeless people and so many other things. But um, this really is one of the most horrific movies to me, um, especially when we have the eye-opening scene. That That is truly one of those terrifying images that sticks with you for life. Just someone prying someone's eyes open to force them to watch violence and, and horrible imagery while putting something in them to make them sick. So um, that definitely was something that stuck with me for life. Uh, it always made me a little bit <laughs> uncomfortable, um, but I, it, I love this film. You're gonna hear me talk about how great I think this film is for the whole entire show, trust me. Um, <laughs> but I would like to hear what, what Ben's uh, view of it is as well. Um, I know that this is one of those movies that people either love or hate, so. Well, not to be um, contrary to that framework, I suppose. I, I do think it's, I, so I want to contextualize this by saying I did read the book and it's been a little while, I'll, I'll admit. But comparing the two, um, and I'm not sure how much of a comparison we really want to do because it's probably a good idea to try and take this work as, as just itself, right? Um, and just kind of analyze it on its own merits. But I do want to at least say that I feel like I enjoyed the book a little bit more because the the entire message seems to be different because of key things that were either left in or taken out of the film. Um, I think a lot of that revolves around the the societal um, responsibilities that you alluded to earlier. And because of that, I do think that the film is still pretty good because it's interesting and obviously Kubrick is a fantastic director, but it leaves a little bit to be desired. So I find myself middling on it. Uh, perhaps throughout the course of this discussion, I'll be one swayed one way or the other. That's interesting that you, uh, I read the book too. I think we've got three readers on the podcast tonight, um, which uh, 
you know, I'm I'm of the opinion, as always, that you know the books don't matter. That we kind of view these view films as a different medium, and so there's a different aesthetic criteria and a different set of judgments. And so our responses to the film are almost independent of our responses to the book. That's always been my my philosophy. I think that when we talk about the ending of this film, particularly, I think that's where that's where your point is definitely most salient because the ending of the book and the ending of the film uh, leave the viewer with two different, perhaps leave the viewer with two different points of view about how these, these artists view violence and Alex's journey and even the concept of free will. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're right that the book has something the book has something to say in our conversation but i also think you're right when we say that we should kind of look at these things as two distinct forms of art with two distinct uh aesthetic criteria um so i i love this movie this is this is one of my favorite films as i said in the introduction i think that this is one of the most important films of the 20th century and a lot of that has to do with some of the themes that were we're going um, that that Kubrick is playing with, and same thing with the book as well. But uh, I think one of the themes in Shira, you talked about this a lot in our sort of our pre-show conversation, where you were talking about how this is uh, one of the themes that that um, this film is is presenting and and deploying is a theme similar to other films of the nineteen seventies, where it's all about youth and youth revolt, like. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm right now. I'm just like paraphrasing what you said. So, what? Tell me what you. Let's get it from the horse's mouth. Yeah. So, in a lot of horror movies, um, especially during this time period, you'll actually see that there's this theme of youth being very horrific to the older people. Uh, youth is going to come in. They're going to be the ones taking over. They're going to basically change all of societies almost to the point where you probably won't recognize it you won't feel comfortable within it anymore you don't understand their language you don't understand their clothing you don't understand their music you don't understand the things that they enjoy so much and you more and more feel like you're not a part of society and then as you age and age and age you just there's all your friends are dying you're all alone and you're just adrift in this it's it's a horror movie <laughs> because you feel completely uh, outside of the world you've always grown up in, and so there's going to be these this anger towards the youth and what they're pushing on on everybody. But there's also going to be this feeling like you just might as well die. And you see this in the scene where you know Alex and his droogs are coming across a homeless man who's singing some old songs from back in the day. Uh, and he's just feeling worthless and useless and just fucking kill me. I, I don't want to live on this planet anymore. You guys are floating around in space and don't care about having any rules or, or any of the regulations we used to have. And um, he just felt kind of out of place. You'll see this in a lot of other movies, though, where youth is scary. And you'll see, like, in The Omen, this child that's coming in and what is he up to? What are his powers? What is what is he going to do to society? So 
this is one of those really good examples of that fear, especially after the 60s. I mean, come on, that scared the shit out of some old people. <laughs> the free love and the drug use and all that. It's That was scary for some old people. They were not used to it. Right. It's a, it's a fear of change. It's a fear of society changing and that the society that is going to replace the one that you as an adult grew up with is going to be radically more violent, radically uh, more um, lascivious and radically and, and is going to come up and kill you quite literally. Um, that's a you're right that that's a fear that was going on in the 19 early 70s 1960s where there was a sort of youth and revolt and then of course the the adults got scared shitless because of uh how active and and uh to their point of view um radically different the youth of the 1960s was going to be from their their youth so yeah i mean i think that I think that you're onto something there when you say when you're talking about how um, that is a fear that was present in the culture at the time. Now, I don't I don't think that the that a clockwork orange is supporting that fear. That is to say that I don't think the the creators behind this behind this film also believe that youth is inherently violent and that the young kids with their long hair and loud music are going to uh are gonna kill us all yeah i don't think that the film is is supporting that point of view but i think it's certainly a re relevant period uh a relevant theme around that time period i'd also want to point out too that um this this does seem to speak to a deeper fear that we have just as a species it seems like um Jim, I agree with you that uh, it. I wouldn't think that it would be the the directorial choice to say that this is the fear that you should pay attention to and this is what's going to happen. Um, but I even beyond just sort of the time period that this is contextualized in, I think we can go back as as far as even ancient Greece and see stories like the the tale of Oedipus about how there is kind of this this sort of strand in this theme of you know the the child rising up to kill the parent. Um, but I, I do think that probably ties into a little bit of a misattribution that is fundamental to our psychology. So when things go wrong, we tend to blame other. And that's not any different whenever one generation sees changes and then they have sort of dissatisfaction with society. They're going to blame the other, which is the new thing that's coming on. And they seem to think that any change is going to herald disaster and catastrophe. Um, I think even today we see that being the the meme of blaming millennials for everything. You know, they're simultaneously um, deciding not to go out to restaurants, but like they're also destroying this industry and that industry. They're not buying diamonds. They're not buying houses. Literally everything is going wrong because millennials um so yeah, i mean it's it's something Bastards that i think always on their phones <laughs> yeah, right. yeah right phones but too much um i think this is really just like a deep-seated fear that is highlighted in that time period but also speaks to a, a larger sort of trend across human history i think you're right ben and one of the one of the things that i want to get into at some point during this podcast and you're kind of pushing us toward it now is what does clockwork orange have to say about today and at least in the united states there's about 40 percent of the country that definitely wants to go back to the good old days which of course the the halcyon good old days that they're unable to really identify uh nonetheless that is the there is a, a a real push toward 
the new and the current is really scary and changing and I don't like it. Please bring me back to my cocoon. Um, and I think that's one of the things that Clockwork Orange is, is bringing up in our, in our discussions and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, I think that's sort of an important point as we, as we go forward. Um, other important points, other things that I think were, were really interesting about this is, I mean, I, this film in its, in its plot, in its structure, in its mise en scène, um, its milieu, its, its, its art direction in all of the cinematography, which we'll talk about in greater detail later, it's, there's a lot of sexual and sexuality uh, imagery. Like this is one of the most phallic movies that I could possibly uh, identify. And so I, one of the things, like how are masculinity and femininity portrayed in this film and how is sexuality portrayed in this film? I think that's one of the other themes that we really have to talk about, especially as we talk about the this celebrated first act of this movie, where it's, it's, it's Alex doing his rape and ultra violence with his droogs. Um, I think that's the, the, the section of this film that's most often cited and it's the section that gets the most attention. And so, but it's also the section that's all about sex and sexuality. Um, what's it, what do we have to say about some of that, some of those themes as they relate to this movie? There's a lot of innuendos in this movie. <laughs> it's it's even, all over the place. I don't even think it's innuendos. I think it's just en endos or whatever. Just endos. <laughs> There's no well, it. It's just endo. It's uh, that's not even the real word. But I yeah, it's not even innuendo. It's direct showing of, uh, <laughs> all of the things. It's very 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 sexual. In fact, it, it was rated X. Um, which is, it's crazy that it won the words that it did with it being rated X. Uh, that's kind of unheard of in most films, uh, which is why a lot of people adjust and edit to get to that R rating, but this one was not, so hooray. <laughs> but um, I, I think it was Noah that recently went to this uh, sexual museum. I don't, I don't remember what he called it. I don't remember what the museum was, but they had a big, picture of uh alex with the giant statue of the penis uh from the pussy yoga ladies room um and so i was like yeah of course they have a clockwork orange in this museum <laughs> are you fucking kidding me if you're gonna have sexual shit in your museum it, it probably should have a clockwork orange art um but yeah it's it's there are points in this movie where when i read the book i was like okay um so they adjusted some of these scenes a little bit. Uh, they made this a lot more artistic for the film. They made it a little bit more palatable, if you will, uh, in the fast forwarding of the threesome and also by making the girls a, a lot older than they were in the book. There were a lot of sexual aspects of the film that were easier to watch as opposed to uh, maybe the elements of the book I don't know if that adjusts what the theme of the book was at all though. But um, one of the things that I found very interesting in the writer and wife scene, uh, I, I found out that they had continued to try to film that scene. It just wasn't working out. It just felt super dark and not quite right. And it wasn't, it wasn't uh, what they wanted. And then uh, Malcolm McDowell said that he wanted to improvise um, 
and he decided he was going to do singing in the rain someone said oh you can't do that it's copywritten well how are we going to get a copyright on it and and Kubrick was like, no, fuck this. We're going to do singing in the rain. You deal with that. That's your job. You argue with people. We're just going to film this shit. And so uh, he improvised and did the dancing and the singing and, and, and added that. It's almost like a whimsy to this horrible situation. You know, um, I, I don't know how you guys feel about that scene. That's one of those really controversial scenes to most people. Whereas for me, I thought it was fucking pure art. Um, and it, I think it depicts uh, this idea of how do we trust, how do we trust people? Who do we trust? Like, um, you know, our, it, when we let someone come into our, like come across our boundaries, like how do we let that affect us later on in life? I think there's a lot of uh, elements of sex being that boundary, right? Um, the idea that when we have sex with someone, we are vulnerable um and the idea of home being kind of like your body and kind of uh like your boundaries in in your uh personal body and and then we get into consent and all that shit of course but uh i don't know if you guys had that interpretation from the scene of the boundaries and the breaking into people's like homes as well as breaking into people's bodies um I don't know. I would, I would like to yeah, yeah, yeah. hear your I, opinion. I, up, I, I mean, you said you said a lot of there, lot there that I want to kind of pick up on. Um, ben, do you want to go before I do? Because I might talk for a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah. I guess the, the direction that I kind of want to take on this, and I, I want to look at it comprehensively, because I do think that the other scenes there there's kind of a, a range here of of um effects and usages of, of sexual imagery and actions um so for instance in that scene in the movie now like it, obviously i think it is a little bit different in the book and perhaps depicted a little bit worse but in the movie whenever he walks into the music shop and he's there and he meets two young ladies there seems to be no force there seems to be no uh, anger, like malintent. It just seems to be a natural occurrence that I don't necessarily think would be construed as negative in any particular way. I'm not sure. Like I just taking it for what it was, I don't think that scene could be portrayed as being negative, perhaps just, you know, youth being youth <laughs> and doing what youth does. However, in other parts of the movie, um, particularly with the rapes and with the writer and his wife or with the yoga lady, um, like, obviously, it takes a completely different energy. And there is, I think, a strong theme there about boundaries and how how you put up boundaries around particular urges and what makes them healthy versus not healthy. Um, that, I think, leads into a really good discussion about toxic masculinity in this movie. And I think that's really where you can start to think about taking that penis sculpture and literally killing a resisting woman with it, right? Like, I think that's the perfect analogy for toxic masculinity. But taking... It, it's it really is about that boundary um but also i think that that kind of bleeds into the discussion that we might have a little bit later about how society sort of manipulates um the behavior of alex and his friends and how he uses that kind of a manipulation right when he comes to the door he says you know my my friends out here there's been a horrible crash he's dying on the road i need to come in you know i i think that the point of the the rest of the movie is to teach how the government in fact seems to be instilling that kind of behavior and that mentality in the people you know i mean like obviously he becomes a tool for the government by the end of the film 
Um, it really doesn't seem to matter what the truth is. Uh, it's really just about power plays and about getting what you want. And we see that at all levels of the society in A Clockwork Orange. So I think that's really kind of like a microcosm, perhaps, of the, the rest of the story we see in the rest of the films whenever he's going to the door and kind of using that emotion and that that seemingly innocuous request, you know, asking for help from your common man to come in and do these terrible things. Yeah, I... Uh, I that whole talk about a free society and and what you're kind of leading us toward i think is really salient in the second act but it's it's set up right here in the first act and in, in that in the singing in the rain scene and i think one of the things that's really both interesting but also incredibly uncomfortable about this film is the way it portrays rape and sexuality um it does so with so much irony um, as uh, even the, the, the rape scene in the, in the theater where, um, Alex and his friends come upon Billy and, and his friends who, and in the narration, Alex says they're getting ready to do, a, do a little bit of the old in, out, in, out on, uh, a clamoring devotchka. I might've, I missed, I might miss the adjective there, but essentially what they're, what he's saying is they're about to have sex with her. He doesn't seem to register it as they're about to rape this woman. So there seems to be for Alex, at least no distinction between consensual sex and, uh, non-consensual rape. Um, and the way each of these scenes is overplayed with the non-diegetic music uh, where we have, well, diegetic music in the singing in the rain scene and non-diegetic music in the uh, theater scene is both of them are played as though there's a jaunty irony to it, as though this is, and in, in some ways that makes this, these scenes a little bit more palatable. It makes these scenes a little bit easier to watch on the surface, but then when you start to sort of have meta feelings, feelings about your own feelings, when you're like, wait, I shouldn't be comfortable watching this, even though this music is trying to make me comfortable watching this. Um, and I think Kubrick is, is masterful in starting out in the wide shot where we get this kind of jaunty, you know, I'm singing in the rain and he's doing these horrible acts while it, punctuating each, uh, each end of the line. But then there's one shot where he closes up on the, where he uses a close up on the woman. You actually see that she's in, the, she's, this is one of the worst moments of her life. Um, and so I, it's it's a weird scene and it's it's weirdly structured because we get this this music that's attempting to make us comfortable with this stuff at the same time when the director is visually reminding us that this is uncomfortable and in fact horrible so the question becomes is this sort of an ethical way of, of of shooting a rape scene or is it is something more ethical something like what Gaspar Noe does in in Irreversible where he stays on it and he just wants to show you this this scene in its in its robbed brutality um i don't know what's more effective i think that this is effective for what this film is trying to do but uh both of them seem to have their ethical boundaries that they're that they're playing with and uh, I find that to be, I find that to be eminently interesting about this movie. And the fact that it's portraying sex and rape 
um, at least for Alex in that first act, as being interchangeable uh, tells us a lot about his character and tells us about a, a lot about the culture that this world is going into. Uh, we can talk more about sexuality and femininity as well, but I, I wanted to say that um, about that singing in the rain scene, since both of you kind of brought that up and we're, we're talking about that. Yeah, when it comes to the the music, um, you know, making it easier to maybe sit through, for some reasons that's actually better for me. You know, um, it's easier for me to sit through those things. The other movies like uh, Last House on the Left and, and other films where they depict stuff a little bit more realistically. Yeah, I have a hard time with those, those scenes. Um, whereas with the, the scenes from A Clockwork Orange, they almost seem not even, like it doesn't even show really much of anything. In fact, when, when the giant cock goes smashing into the girl's face, it turns into a painting of, of a mouth growing outward. Uh, it doesn't even show any really graphic violence. Um, what's interesting is with the, the consensual scene, uh, I find it interesting that in all the rape scenes, uh, it's it's in other locations, whereas the consensual sex is happening within his own confines of his room and his comfort zone. Um, but also, I I found that scene really interesting because, by the way, 28 minutes of filming for that scene cut down to that little tiny right. bit. Uh, and also they thought if they could fast forward it, it would keep it, uh, okay and not rated X. They still rated it X because they were afraid, not because they thought it was that bad, but because they were afraid if they didn't rate that X, that pornography would then just fast forward their, their videos to try to stay out of being rated X and they could uh, find a loophole. They wanted to make sure a loophole didn't come up from that scene so that's hilarious so that scene was a, an attempt at actually crossing a boundary inter interestingly enough uh and they were like oh we know what you're up to <laughs> kubrick it's not gonna work so um i, I don't I, know what's amazing about that scene is how well it fits with the music that it's it's just that's a masterclass in editing and i have no idea how they could do a 28 minute scene and still be able to get it choreographed in exactly the right way i mean this is I, on a technical level this film is a fucking masterwork uh but yeah i i think you're right that this is i i that i I don't know. Uh, we're, we'll talk more about the technicalities a little bit later, but my God, that's it. You're right. 28 minutes of filming. And that's a fantastic little bit of trivia there. Um, yeah, I think uh, let's, let's sort of return to this, uh, this, this conversation about how masculinity and femininity are, uh, are treated, treated. Um, one of the uh, great uh, comments from one of our regular listeners, Byron, says uh how do you detoxify masculinity and also where can i get a shirt reading detoxifying masculinity um and i think i don't know if this film offers an answer on that i think this film is definitely trying to deal with that toxic masculinity as you pointed out ben with him smashing the penis on the person's um face and then also in the costume design where the cod, cod pieces, pieces. <laughs> exactly. i mean there's one moment where alex is in a conflict with Dim, and he very specifically straddles Dim, 
pauses, waits a moment so that his cod piece is right in front of Dim's face. And it's it's a you know obvious sign of like you are going to suck my dick now before he then straddles him. This is in every case of Alex and his droogs, it is them invading, attempting to 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 put the penis on other men and other women. Um, it's even when, when Alex strikes dim, he does so in the quote unquote yarbles in the balls. Um, all of this is a, it's, it's so phallocentric that, uh, it's impossible to miss that this film is, is, tr is playing with the penis. is <laughs> playing with the ideas of how much toxic mas masculinity invades, um, the youth and the process of growing up. Uh, so yeah, I, I think this is, it's, it's fundamental to understanding the first act of this movie is how masculinity is portrayed. Um, even his pet was a dick. <laughs> even his pet was a dick. Well, that's the other, I mean, that's one thing is, you know, you've, you've got that scene where Alex is masturbating to Beethoven and you get uh, one of the, the, on his wall is a woman with her legs spread. And what is the snake doing going right up into her, her vagina? Um, and then of course there's religious symbolism that goes along with that as well. There's a little bit of Adam and Eve uh, parallels there. It does, I mean, the film does relate sex to evil as uh, within the Christian symbology. Um, what about femininity? What about the way women were portrayed in this film? Did that strike any of you as well? Yeah, I was a little bit confused about that, I honestly would say. Um, whenever I think about that theme, the one thing that really sticks out in mind to me is how Alex's mother seems to only be able to cry in, in response to a lot of different situations. Any sort of like emotional um, swell results in her breaking down in tears. And so... I, I'm tempted to say that Kubrick was just showing, um, kind of like that stereotype of feminine weakness, um, and that might have been just to sort of highlight his use of phallus as power, right? And I think that's that's fairly un, um, that's not controversial. It's like the phallus is used in this movie to be a symbol of power, um, and so like maybe his his depiction of femininity would be to do the exact opposite. But I'm also thinking of again like yoga lady or whatever, um, cat lady. Uh, I think she was uh, mentioned as in the newspaper in the film. Catwoman, cat excuse me, yes, Catwoman. She she fought back, and she might have been really the the only woman to ever in this film in any scene like fight back against alex against anyone else like obviously there's a lot of of rape going on um and so that can be depicted as a struggle but it's also sort of depicted as like she's sort of at the mercy of these men who are taking advantage of her um and really i mean this, this Catwoman seems to be the only one who kind of like stood up against this and like a, a i'm standing i'm confronting you i'm trying to hit you she does hit him but then ultimately gets crushed by the penis right so i'm not sure like i think it's it's not very kind to the feminine perspective well i mean the interesting thing about that character she was the one who didn't consent she's like no get the fuck away from my house leave and he's like ah well thank you anyway and then crunch crunch away in the rocks you know uh but he's still broke into her home and 
this plays into a common fear, which, hey, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, the lobster all of a sudden. Hey, guess what? <laughs> it goes into that common fear of for women of living alone. And, uh, you know, someone might break in and then you don't have anybody there to protect you and then you're vulnerable. Um, but she she gets her home broken into. Uh, and even though she was independent, she was, she's literally living the dream. Honestly, this is where most women would like to be. You have a big giant, nice house, a bunch of cats, and you don't have to deal with anybody's bullshit and you tell them to fuck off. That's great. She also did everything that you're supposed to do that we always yell at the horror movie lady, call the cops. She did. She called the cops. She's like, this was just really odd. I don't, I don't feel comfortable. And the cops like, well, I'm going to come over and visit anyway. And she's like, well, if you think so, that's fine. Um, you know, it's just so interesting how much she did everything she was supposed to do. But the real thing that did her in was being, deciding to be alone. Um, and that's, that's the ultimate fear. I think they're, they're making us buy into that fear in a way with that kind of a scene. Um, but is there truth to that? I don't fucking know. I mean, it is really scary being a woman alone. And a lot of guys don't realize what we go through just walking through a dark parking lot, walking with keys between our our knuckles and and worried about if someone's underneath our car or behind, you know, in the back seat of our car, or, you know, is someone going to try to hurt or harm us? Um, even just being around people we know, but we're alone with them. Are they going to try something? Are they going to force themselves? We, we live in these constant fears. Like, is it justified to live in these fears or, or not? Probably. <laughs> like she should have called the cops. She should have been concerned about someone knocking on her door late at night saying, I need help. That is concerning. You know, ah, why should that be concerning? People should be able to ask for help and you should be able to trust that. This is not a good society if we can't even trust that. And um, so she's a very interesting character because she does portray a lot of what women probably would like to live like, but what they're afraid to live like. And maybe for good reason. And uh, as much as that might not be great it does reflect our society still today in a way um i think it definitely yeah i mean there's no doubt that it reflects our society today i mean it's not it's no surprise that most women many women that i know carry some form of self-defense either a mace or one of those little cat things where they you know what I'm talking about. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Where it looks like a cat, but it's actually a fucking weapon. Um, yeah, I, there's a cat keychain. You know, it's, it's something that, that's not part of... Which they know, made like, illegal to carry with you in Texas. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. So you Texas. can't even try to protect yourself as a woman. Apparently, they're totally fine with people walking around with guns, but... You can have a keychain, but you can have an automatic weapon. Um, <laughs> oh my god, come on. That makes sense. That's all right. Yeah, what I like your society too. Um, what about some of the other women in the film? It struck me that in the second act scene where they're testing Alex and testing the the method that uh whether or not it worked on him. There's a woman that he's pre presented with, and she is just parts. Like she is not, she has no agency in that moment. She, her face is a blank slate. The camera zooms in on her breasts and it's only, she's only parts. And it, we get this one sort of reverse shot where it's from behind and she kind of 
uh, breaks character and does a little bow and curtsy and runs and scampers off. So it does kind of make it think that this was just a role that she was playing. But still, like it, I, I think you're right, Ben, when you talk about the the mother character, all she does is cry. The female character in the um, in the 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 theater in the testing scene, she is all parts. The uh, Catwoman is murdered by the penis. Um, there is the nurse who just seems kind of uh, always happy and just delighted. And there's the other nurse that's fucking the doctor. Um, all, all of these women sort of seem to be subservient to men. And normally in most films, I would say that this is sort of a myopic view of women and, and, and femininity. And I would, this would be the part where I, I use feminist criticism and say, well, you're a bad movie. But I think that this film might be a little bit more pointed in its criticisms. I think it is trying to call out these forms of these, these archetypical forms of masculinity and femininity um, as as uh, uh, subjects of satire rather than simply reproducing the cultural ideas of masculinity or femininity. I mean, that's that's really the central question here is, is this re um, reproducing the cultural ideas of masculinity and femininity or is this making fun of them? And I seem to think that it's making fun of them, but. Uh, I don't know if the I rest feel the I feel the comedy as well. I think that that's part of the the editing and how the song choices. I feel like they were trying to be somewhat comical in some ways, although these are dark subjects that some people will say you can't be humorous about. But when you're talking about the mocking of society and a, a cultural creation of what a girl is and what a guy is. Um, what women are supposed to be and what men are supposed to be. That that kind of satire is, I think, fully justified. Um, but I almost wonder if it's not about masculine and feminine so much as it is about power and powerless uh, is the real wrestle that's going on here. Of course, we can use masculine and feminine to fully uh, tell that story because it's something we're familiar with. But maybe like the actual deeper theme that they're talking about is the powerful and the powerless and that constant battle that's going on. Um, and in that respect, that's why they're using women in these kinds of roles and men in these kinds of roles, because it's trying to call out uh, the minority status of women and the minority status of prisoners and the minority status of, you know, so many different types of people in our society, uh, homeless people. Too. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we, we even see this kind of come out near the end when Alex happens upon his, his droogs and they're cops now. And now the the power has flipped and we have one of the most horrific fucking scenes, holy shit, uh, of the drowning of Malcolm McDowell, which, by the way, was actually filmed in real time. As you're sitting there wondering how he's holding his breath, they are really holding him under. Um but he has an oxygen mask that he, he slips on, I hear. He, he said that he now, because they used a broth to give it that, you know, trough feel. He says he still to this day gets sick from smelling that particular soupy broth smell because that was actually a very uh, psychologically damaging scene that he actually was part of. And what's interesting about that scene, once again, we have that comic effect that occurs there where the cops are shoving him into the trough He's drowning and they're hitting him. Now, 
this would normally be a very like, oh, this is a horrible scene, but they have these funny sound effects. And it's like, what? It's like a fucking Tom and Jerry cartoon. What the hell is happening here? And it's these weird comic effects added to these horrific, you know, scenes that it's, it's kind of confusing, but you kind of get an idea what they're trying to say too, right? Like, we're gonna make this palatable, but we're really trying to just tell you like, violence is bad. Power that is misused is bad. Invading people's boundaries, bad. <laughs> you know, these are all bad things. Maybe you shouldn't do these shit, these things. And we don't, we shouldn't have to experiment on you to tell you it's a bad thing. Um, right. I, well, I think, I, I think that one of the central points you made, which I think is really, really smart, is you're talking about the power and the powerless. And in our society, the way we have constructed masculinity and femininity, you cannot talk about masculinity and femininity without also talking about power and power constructions. Power and power constructions are essential to conversations about masculinity and femininity. They're essential to conversations about class. They're essential to conversations about race. They're essential to conversations about all kind of disability issues, all of uh, queer issues as well. They're essential to all of these kinds of issues uh, uh, that power dynamics are at the heart of these things. So. Um, I don't know. What about you, Ben? Do you want to do you want to weigh in on this uh, this aspect of the film? Yeah, sure. No, I I I think Sherry, your perspective on that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, and so, like narratively throughout the course of the film, I think that what we see is sort of a you know the beginning of the smaller ideas that sort of expand to a larger sort of frame as we kind of get closer to the end of the movie. And so, you know, if you do take kind of like that one initial story between you know masculine and feminine kind of like in that first act and you understand that as just an analogy for power structures um i, I do think what you're saying though i mean it, it makes a really easy transition from you know alex and his friends as rapists to the police using their you know their nightsticks and bending him over a trough and beating them with the clubs you know as a, a show of power and a sort of like very kind of a, a masculine versus feminine sort of imagery there to ableism like the you know the able like the the big bodyguard guy who lifts his weights and stuff like that and protects the dude in the wheelchair so there's able versus disabled and then we do finally take that to the the grandest scale of you know government versus citizen um so yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and if we do take this movie as kind of like a satire then i think it's um I think it makes a lot more sense too to be able to sort of see this you know each individual piece is kind of like one smaller story that sort of weaves into a larger narrative about um bigger ideas you know um yeah so i do think that makes a lot of sense also can i just point out something about the uh guy who carries the uh the writer after the writer gets um injured and has to be in a wheelchair that is actually darth vader um david prowse <laughs> darth vader um and a funny argument that happened on set with the him carrying the wheelchair um so he was he was carrying the wheelchair stanley kubrick says hey i need you to carry the wheelchair up and down the stairs and he's like no i'm not gonna fucking do this shit you're not the one take director i'm not gonna keep carrying around a man in a wheelchair like, this is not my job. And, uh, you know, Kubrick laughed instead of firing him or getting mad at him. He laughed and he's like, all right, we'll try to do it in as little takes as possible. I, you're right. And, and so they were able to do it in six takes, uh, which I guess everybody was okay with. But <laughs> apparently there was an argument about the carrying of the writer. 
Right. Uh, but I love that scene though. That is such a great scene. I'm glad that they worked it out and, and managed to put that in there because um, there's once again, that power and powerless, but this is where they're working together, right? The powerful is actually helping the person who's harmed and hurt, not only physically, but also helping him deal with the monster that hurt and harmed him in the first place. Uh, even working in cahoots with him to poison him with the the wine and make him pass out and 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 to put him in the in the creepy room and and to play the music loudly and and goddamn the the I just have to say the juxtaposition between the opening scene where you're panning out to see Alex, which is one of my favorite opening scenes to any movie ever. Uh, they juxtapose it with the uh, the writer playing the the music and then you pan out and you see all of the people that are just hanging out with him, letting him get his justice, you know, and, and oh my God, fantastic fucking writing. But I love the idea of the powerful, being able to help the powerless is, is an, another option out there, so. Right, and that's, that is in that case, but in many other cases, we do have the powerful, um, taking advantage of the powerless. Um, I think a no conversation about the themes of sexuality and rape in this film are complete without talking about the scene between the headmaster and Alex, where he does sexually assault Alex, or at least seem to attempt to. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a hand on the balls. And uh, that is a, that's a form of sexual assault. It's a form of, of, of rape. Uh, well, it's a, certainly a form of sexual assault. And uh, that is, uh, so, so the idea that this is just limited to Alex and his droogs ignores that really, I think, important point is that when we have powerful people, um, a lot of other people can be powerless, including Alex, who just the night before was you know, inflicting his power on other people. So, I do want um, to too, like when, before we move on and uh, hopefully this doesn't jump ahead sure. too much, but I absolutely love that the writer ends up being thrown in jail. <laughs> <Because it's> him, <laughs> him working together with his bodyguard to try and find justice, you know, the powerful and powerless coming together. And ultimately as a, as a propagandist or like a, a revolutionary trying to bring what could potentially be positive change to the government ends up just getting thrown in prison as a political prisoner. And like we even get scenes in the prison as the warden's talking about, well, we need to clear out these common criminals because we're probably going to need room for political prisoners. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's amazing how that kind of just gets sort of seeded through the larger story. <laughs> well, and then it totally shits on the prison system, right? It's, it's explaining why they do it. It's, there's reasons why they imprison the people that they do. Uh, they're not actually trying to protect our streets. They're not actually trying to help other citizens. They're doing things for uh, a form of control. And that's very uncomfortable for many people to to try to consider. It, it, it's something that still to this day people argue that is not a thing, but it totally is a fucking thing when the exact same crimes happening in the same exact ways have different timelines or different... Uh, uh, ways of modes of punishment, yeah. right? It's very uncomfortable for people to. We we have a just world fallacy in this society. We think that everything should be just, and so they are just. It's just not the truth, <laughs> and that's what was so great about the writer, right? He's trying to get his own justice. Nope, sorry, you don't get that. Uh, yeah, horrible. that's. 
I mean, this is, uh, you know, Ben, you and I are doing the shortcut series where we're creatively adding to other films and, and we're talking about sort of pitches for other movies. A pitch I had as I was walking, as I was watching this film again, was uh, I want the political drama of A Clockwork Orange. Like what's going on behind the scenes? What is this government like? What are the, you know, I want kind of a wag the dog of Clockwork Orange or, or a, uh, you know, one of those kind of dramas where we're getting into maybe even like a, a West Wing of the Clockwork Orange world. That would be amazing. I'm just imagining, I'm just imagining the camera and then you have Alex and his droogs walking down hallways talking very fast. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I'm less concerned with, I think, I think Clockwork Orange tells the story of Alex and his droogs very well, but I'm really interested in the prime minister, the minister, that character, the one who's feeding Alex at the end. Like I'm interested in his character. I want a, I want a a West Wing style show that centers on that guy. I think it would be well. That character perfectly depicts what is actually still going on today. We have politicians that are only concerned about staying in power. They do not actually care about what's best for everybody. They do not care about anything but themselves and their pocketbooks. And they are willing to do anything and everything and take away all of their you know morality uh, just to remain in power. And this is. The danger that's still happening like it's is as long as we are allowing uh this kind of money and and corporations especially now intervening with a lot of our our politics shit, it's very dangerous because now people are just going to want to be in it for the money not to actually benefit society not to actually represent the citizens it's scary mm -hmm. it is scary I mean, that's, yeah, let's, that gets us into the second act of this film and it gets us into some of the other themes in this film. Um, I, you know, let me, I'm going to offer up my interpretation of this movie and let, let you guys kind of tell me whether or not I'm an asshole and whether or not I'm crazy. Um, but my interpretation of the film's thesis is that one of the costs of a free society is a world where rape and violence cannot be absolutely prevented. And that has to, and, and to sort of support that, um, this film characterizes the worst thing, one of the worst things happening to the main character is not that he's put in prison, is not that he is is racked with guilt about what he's done, but rather that free will has been taken away. And so it seems as though my interpretation of this film is that it is trying to tell us that free will is almost more important than the other acts of violence, that the, that the stripping of free will is more, is a greater crime, is worse thing to happen to a person than the rape and violence that we see in the first act. And if that, like, if that's the thesis of this film, that a, one of the causes of, of a free society is that rape and violence cannot be prevented, that's a damn hard truth. Like that is a really fucking hard truth to live with. That we, that in order to be free, we kind of have to put up with the fact that rape and violence are going to be aspects of our society. 
I, I, you know, maybe, maybe my interpretation of the film's thesis is off. Maybe you guys have something to say about it. Well, but this, that's this what was I, in another yeah. film too, uh, where they discussed this. Uh, I believe it was Minority Report, where they uh, basically have it where you can, they can tell what crimes you're going to eventually do, and they start imprisoning people before the crimes can actually occur. But should we be imprisoning someone for a possible future crime, even if they haven't done it yet? Is that okay? Is there any kind of morality to that? Um, like what, at what point are we going to start, uh, deciding what things are criminal? In my opinion, yeah, we're not going to eliminate everything, but goddamn, can we just educate people? <laughs> like, is, is that fucking possible? And, and that is the thing that's actually, we're getting a wall all the time. Uh, people don't want to talk about sex. They don't want to talk about consent. They don't want to talk about gender. They don't want to talk about men and women. They don't want to talk about any of our differences. You cannot mention that there are LGBT members raising children. You can't talk about any of these things in the schools. We cannot educate children that differences occur. And I think the consequences of not understanding the differences of others and not accepting people is a huge part of the problem. Now that won't solve everything. I'm not trying to like run for president or anything, but I think education is a huge part of it. And in the Clockwork Orange world, we don't know what his education is. He's not really going to school anyway. But it's pretty clear that most of the people are ignorant. Um, it's pretty clear that Alex is pretty ignorant of things. His, his school and his parents and all the people that are supposed to be, you know, help, helping raise him up. Uh, they're either enabling or they're hurting or harming or, or sexually assaulting him. He doesn't have any uh, adult role models to help him understand what's right and wrong and what, what we should know. And like, what do we as a society need to do to help, you know, help these kids? <laughs> like, it's well, such a perfect, stupid theme. <laughs> no, that's, that's the absolute, that's, that's the perfect question to ask in this movie though. And I, I, I do think though that I, I take a little bit of a different interpretation than Jim here. Free will is absolutely at the core of this movie. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you brought up like what we could do and about education and stuff, because I think that is the answer. And I think even this, this story, I will say, uh, points to that answer. But from my take, what I really see is the depiction of free will as being almost non-existent throughout the entire movie. So I really think that the point is to say at the beginning, it looks like he's making these choices. And then when we go into the treatment scene, it's very obvious that that free will, what we think he has is free will can be taken away and he can be made to do different things. But by the end, we get kind of like the, the final aha there that he can be put back exactly the way that he was, which sort of suggests that those choices were controlled from the beginning anyway. And the control was coming from the social context and the way he was raised and all these, these different influences on a person's life. And I think really, you know, of course that goes back to the nature versus nurture debate, but I, I do think that, you know, in this film, at least and in the story, it's the nurture that really seems to be the driving force for the the horrible things that are happening in this society. And perhaps those decisions are made because no politicians think it's profitable to clean up crime. Um, I could definitely see that as being kind of like a narrative that we could draw and and would be perfectly at home in a clockwork orange but one of the big reasons why i really really love the book is because whenever we get that final resolution it does point to that answer that you're talking about shara because you know at the end of the film we see well he's given this great life 
as a political ploy and as a manipulation so that he can be used as a tool to keep the current government in power. So he's given all these great things. We don't see what happens after that. Well, spoilers, what happens after that is that he becomes a reasonable, functional member of society. You know what I'm saying? Like the 21st once you give chapter. Yeah, yeah. Once you give people the means and you put them in a healthy context, then they have, you know, a better social situation. They tend to make better choices. And he doesn't stay as a rapist. He doesn't stay as a murderer. He goes to his job and he goes to a bar and he sees some of his friends. And it's, you know, that's that's pretty much the end of it. Right. So, like, I mean, I really do think that's the resolution here is that certain manipulations can be put in place in a society by a government to have better outcomes. But ultimately, free will is kind of an illusion and it really does determine or it, it does depend almost entirely on those influences and those contexts. I've, I've, uh, I have a lot of friends that are, you know, in the mid they're, they're in their mid age situation, but they still like to play their rock music and stuff. And I have continuously tried to tell those middle-aged guys that are still like playing their rock music. I'm like, you need to name your band the 21st chapter. Like it's hilarious. It's a hilarious idea. Like you have your your job and you have your side gig. You know, <laughs> like that would be a fucking hilarious name to a band. Nobody's taken me up on it because they think it's too obscure. But I think it's really like a funny idea of throughout your youth you had this rebellious nature and you're like fuck my parents and you know angry anarchy symbols and then all of a sudden you're just like okay. I go to work and, <laughs> and I contribute to society and everything's fine. I still like to play rock music though. Um, but I, that is kind of the most interesting aspect of what the story does to Alex. It seems like at the end, Kubrick hints at the idea that he's only been encouraged to continue to be bad though. Um, but I, I mean, yeah. that's... Let's. I. I. I think you're. I think you're. You're both sort of pointing to the ending as this. This answer to the question about uh, free will and and all that. And and I think that you know I. I do want to talk about that ending, and I do want to talk about the twenty first chapter for some people who perhaps have not read the book but have seen the film. Um. You know, we'll talk about like whether or not Alex is cured at the end. But kind of to, I. I. I do differ from you slightly, Ben, is that I, I understand, I understand where you're coming from. And I think that you make some interesting points that we never really, that the film is talking about how we never actually have free will, that it is all sort of a, a map of, of societal factors. And, you know, you can almost predict how somebody is going to behave based upon societal factors. But if I were to attempt to, um, give a person a a an education and and a sense of culture one of the things i might start with would be classical music um i might ask that person to be more familiar with beethoven than he is with uh what is the slushy slew or whatever it is it's some dumb band name that one of the girls mentioned and he takes that tape deck out of the player before he puts in his uh his beethoven to masturbate with um i think that it, like i alex is a cultured person i guess i'm kind of differing with 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 both of you a little bit he is a cultured person he's a re relatively educated person he's socially adaptable he has his droogs he understands the world in which he's working in, in, in the first act of the film. And then all of that is taken away from him. And he, 
is left with the inability to make choice as the chaplain says so the the real the real crux of this film is in the the um the eye eye forcing scenes he is given no choice he is he is essentially taken what we understand as free will away um and the like we are all driven by our societal motives we are all driven by the senses of masculinity and the senses of class prejudice and the senses of justice just by existing in this world that sort of super ego mentality that we're all kind of imbued with as uh members of this culture but we also all believe ourselves i believe uh i i, I think this is true of most people we all believe ourselves to be given a certain amount of agency and it is that agency that's taken away from him in the second act. And so I think that that's really where the crux of this film is. And it's talking, for me, it's talking about how taking away that, that free will, the ability to make a negative choice is at the heart of what a free society is. And that's, as I said before, I do think that that's a really uncomfortable truth to wrestle with and i i i wouldn't i i wouldn't i guess what i'm saying is i'm not i wouldn't so easily dismiss i think um the agency and the free will that the, that he has even as a member of the society i think that's that's where uh, your my interpretations differ a little bit ben I think one one rebuttal that I would have, or one not necessarily a rebuttal, but a counter argument, just to go ahead and throw this out. So I do see that um, parallel to what you're saying, uh, one of our, our members of the chat here, Evan, uh, was talking about the one point that Kubrick wanted to make. It wasn't a lack of education, culture, family, et cetera, that made him evil. Um, yes, he does seem somewhat culture-like. Obviously, he does seem to be a gifted of tongue, and he does enjoy classical music. But we also find out that his parents have no idea what he's up to at night. They're asleep by the time he gets home. They really don't seem to take care of him. They don't keep tabs on him. They don't care whether or not he goes to school. Um, and as far as his relationships with his friends, well, it seems to be, once again, like another power relationship. I wouldn't necessarily call those healthy relationships because he seems to be very clearly just sort of using them. Um, he has no problem being violent with him. And in the end, that's kind of what turned them against him is that they sort of got tired of it, right? Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily say that all the signs are there that he has sort of like this perfect sort of healthy life. He just seems to be a little bit off. But I do think it is an interesting discussion. Like even if, let's say, taking your perspective that that choice to make a negative um, action um, is at the core of this movie, I do still think that's that's a very interesting line of thought to take and a very interesting discussion to be had about that. Cool. What do you think, Shara? Yeah, so um, I, I agree with ben, what Ben is saying. Um, yes, there were definite signs that, you know, he had everything together. But uh, the thing is, is we have this idea that if mom and dad are in the picture and if they, you know, are working hard and if they provide food and shelter and clothing and, and everything that their child needs, then everything's good. That's not the case. <laughs> and we see this popping up even today, probably more so today. A lot of the uh, the youth that act out are kids in suburban households that have uh, an upper middle class lifestyle, that have everything that they could ever possibly want. They're completely 
taken care of in most cases. And it, the thing is, is we tend to blame the parents still when, when they act out, when they tend to do horrible things to people, we, we go, Oh, what, what did the parents do? What did the parents do? Well, they did everything that society tells them to do, but is that the right thing? And we are starting to see studies about, you know, authoritarian parenting or the more enabling type of parenting. Like what is the right parenting style? Is it the parents' fault? Is it the teacher's fault? Is it the school's fault? Um, you know, there is something to be looked into as far as how people are raised and what they're taught and what they are, you know, what they are raised around. But this was actually brought up in A Clockwork Orange. If you look at where he was raised at, his parents were working too hard and too, they did not have time to pay attention to their kid. Mom was going to the factory again. She can't fucking pay attention to every little place that he is at every little hour. She's probably working two jobs. Who knows? She's working her ass off and they're living in the projects. He can't even go in the elevator at one point. Oh God, someone destroyed it. Okay, this fucking sucks. They are bringing up what it's like to be raised uh, in an urban setting where everything has kind of gone to shit and where people are always working. This is what we live in today. It, it was a prophecy of our future. People are working so hard. Mom and dad, even if they are together, are working two or three jobs each. Uh, they don't have time to spend time with with little Johnny anymore. And as much as they want to try to like be there for him, they can't. And even if you do live in a suburb, you're still working your ass off most of the time. But let's say you have the perfect household. Mom stays home all day. You're living in the suburbs. Uh, whenever the kid wants his freaking rock t-shirts, he gets them. Everything's perfect. What if he still acts out? What if he still decides? on violence why have you enabled him in that way like it, there's so many questions like what causes people to behave this way and i mean honestly this whole argument this whole discussion came really to a, a god it was like on almost every news station and almost every single television back in uh columbine uh when columbine happened like, who do we blame for this? Why are these youth acting out? Why would they do such a thing? Now it's becoming more and more common that kids will do this stuff. Uh, we have mass shootings happening all the time. And and this kind of thing actually happened with uh, A Clockwork Orange in a way. When it came out, there were some acts of violence that occurred. Stanley Kubrick was blamed for it. And there were people threatening him and his family. They were saying they were going to kill him. This is why it took his death to come for the film to even you know, really be allowed to be played again because um, he was refusing it to be out there. Is it, whose fault is it? Is it media? Is it family? Is it school? Well, it was, I mean, I don't know if it was banned. Like the film itself was not banned. Um, it did, it has been on AFI's list for prior to Kubrick's death. So um, it's been on list, but he uh, made it so it wouldn't be played in certain areas because he was getting okay. threat threats to his family. And it was, I think it was in England where they banned I it. hadn't heard. I, yeah, I hadn't heard that part. But, um, yeah. but like he had, it wasn't just threats to him. It was threats to his family where they were actually threatening to go into his home and kill and rape the family uh, Alex style. Um, they were very creative with their ways of saying they were going to attack him. And it was because they were blaming him for acts of violence that were happening around the area based off of his movie. Uh, so there's almost like a, a postmodernism to this film <laughs> in that like, 
what causes the violence? Is it this movie that's causing the violence? I don't fucking know. Like, where do we, who do we blame? Do we just blame the person's free will? Well, it's really interesting that you brought up Columbine because I think one of the the things that came up during that period too is like a lot of people would blame blame like violent music, you know, Marilyn Manson or whatever, like maybe the drug problem or maybe video games. Um, and everyone kind of wants to find sort of the easy sort of answer to that say, well, if we just removed this one thing from society, that's going to clean up the whole thing. That being said, I think the other side of that too is at the heart of this, and especially what Jim is talking about, kind of like the the gun debate in the United States. And I'm not even sure if I should really bring this up because it's probably going to get our video taken off of YouTube. But yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one huge question that we deal with now, at least in this country is, you know, does taking this thing away, does taking this choice away, this choice to do a negative thing also prevent other positive things that might happen? And that's a really tough question, even just for one very sort of <laughs> narrow kind of type of choice. We're not even talking about, you know, just like the, the, the inherent ability to be aggressive or to stand up to people or stand up for yourself like we see in this movie that was entirely stripped from Alex, you know, his ability to be sexual. He couldn't fight back against injustice. You know, he became, uh, you know, a crumpling sort of like a, not, I don't, I don't want to say a coward, but he was just unable to take any action whatsoever. He was completely ineffectual. Um, and that takes it to an entirely other level. But yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an absolutely relevant question, right? Like, and it's, it's so tough to answer that, you know, even getting at hardcore in-depth studies with statistics and like really kind of like measuring that out sort of leaves something behind. You know what I mean? I mean, like our... I man, I really don't want to. I don't want to get into this issue, but I kind of want to have. To, I yeah, whatever. Fuck it. Um. Okay. So like, I a lot Do of the it. arguments. I'm I am encouraging you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Getting me into trouble. A lot of the arguments that I hear from the program, <laughs> pro gun side, especially like not even just about the Constitution, is that we're trying to safeguard ourselves from potential um, tyranny and like horrible things that might happen. Right. Like that's really kind of like the thing that that is brought up all the time that we kind of need this to protect ourselves and yes that's going to cause some bad people to be able to do bad things in a particular way but in their perspective we kind of need that so that we can prevent this other worst thing from happening and i think that's probably what what really is is super analogous to jim what you were saying about you know is the cost of a free society that people need the choice to be able to do those kinds of terrible things um, and that's not something I guess I'm prepared to answer right now on this podcast. You know what I mean? Right. Same. I keep on, I keep on trying to argue, like, let's try to educate, let's figure out the root of the problem. And, and it's like, but Jim, you keep on bringing it up. It's, it's an uncomfortable truth. Uh, is maybe there's just some sex and violence that is just going to be there always. And it makes me think of, uh, the punk rock song the, by the exploited sex and violence. And literally the only lyrics to the song is sex and violence. And it will, it's a total earworm. Go check it out. But every time I watch this movie, that is the song that goes in my head. <laughs> and maybe it is inevitable. Sex and violence is just fucking inevitable. Uh, should we regulate it? Ah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really difficult question to answer. And I don't have an answer either. Certainly, and, and I don't even know if this would be the forum to try to uh, run for president and announce my candidacy. But I, I think that art can serve multiple functions, right? Like, and one of the functions is asking a really tough question without actually answering it um, to with any degree of, of uh, uh, 
you know, completeness. So this, to me, a clockwork orange is a giant question that says, um, you know, one of the costs of a free society is a world where rape and violence cannot be absolutely prevented. What are you going to do about it? Or don't you think like, it's not, it's not, I don't, I, I, I don't have an answer to it. And I, I appreciate both of you sort of struggling to answer that question. Um, and and it's, you know, it, that's one of the things that, that's really good about art is it sort of leaves us wondering these things, leaves us wondering. Now, I happen to be, you know, pro, for gun control. Does that also mean that um, I'm disagreeing with Clockwork Orange? I. I don't think a clockwork orange is really making a statement as much as it's asking this is, is sort of proposing this idea and, and requesting us to think about it, requesting us to see to what degree is a free society, um, you know, dependent upon having to tolerate the fact that there is hate speech and that there, there are gun crimes and there are uh, sexual assaults in the world. Um, and would we be willing to give up a free society to to have all of those things just disappear the next day and have every rapist or gun murderer or um, hate speech uh, uh, purveyor uh, immediately start gagging when they're about to say something offensive or do something offensive or violent? Would we be willing to live in that world? Is that what the, the state's responsibility is? Um, you know, it's not, in, I don't know if it's really incumbent upon us or if we are even capable of answering all of those questions, but those are the questions that this piece of art makes me think about. Um, and whether or not I ever come to an, a conclusion is kind of a different question, a different, different thing. Um, I think these are one of the things that are just, just part of being in this world and being in a society is trying to figure out questions like this, um, not to not with any particular end in mind. And in fact, knowing that there will be no end, uh, that there will be no conclusion. Um, well, the uh, other thing that's that's really interesting about all this is, so we had the, the struggle of the powerful and the powerless. That that we can agree is, is definitely a part of the theme. Um, and then we talk about free will and, you know, not having that free will and, what that means for how we should legislate maybe, but maybe even how we educate. Um, but, but the other thing is we have to definitely consider the fact that they did bring up police brutality and the misuse of power and how people who are in position of power may, may uh, not be so good with it. In fact, it's probably the regular that when people have positions of power that they misuse it whether they're political or they're police or whatever uh, whether they're clergy <laughs> you know whatever the fuck they're doing in positions of power whether they're man woman um so then what does that mean we should just sit and accept this shit like no obviously you kind of want to rebel against it right you watch this movie and you're kind of like no fuck all this noise but then what does that mean like have we missed the point i don't know like it there's so many non-solutions to these problems and it almost feels like there's 
no hope. <laughs> it's well, it's very I hopeless. Be, I don't know if I don't know if there's no hope. It, you know, certainly I'm pessimistic about the world at large. Like that's just kind of uh, what it's like to be. I tend to be a pessimist in 21st century. What? I tend to be a pessimist a little. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sorry. I, I think that uh, I would be. Let's just put it this way. I would be careful of any person who offers an easy solution to a complex problem. Um, and that includes people on my side of the aisle. The people who say, oh, well, if we just get rid of all of the guns, then all of the violence goes away. I don't think that that, I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, I, you know, so I would, as I said, I would be careful of anybody who makes a, uh, who who proposes a simple solution to uh, a complex problem? Um, Doesn't that seem to be the way of the political process, though? I mean, like obviously, yeah. these are very tough questions to answer, and we here, I think, have taken a position of intellectual honesty in, in admitting that. But I do think people, because they are so complicated, do sort of take very quickly to people who offer those easy answers right i mean and that's something else that you see a lot in this movie is you know anyone who is willing to pick up that power and that phallus and ram it down your throat is kind of the person that ends up being put in charge of society as a whole <laughs> yep you know? yeah i think you're i think you're right on ben uh yeah i mean we we sort of reduce our complex political discussions to sound bites uh, that's something that's all. But it all explains over. Trump. It really well, <laughs> explains. I mean, I, I wanted to go the whole there. podcast without actually mentioning his name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not to with this movie. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like it was kind of calling out the the future of our politics and and the fact that uh you know entertainment and violence and sex is it's getting to that point where nothing really shocks us anymore. We've become numb to a lot of shit. And so when we hear all these crazy stories, we're just like, ah, people live their lives. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> a clockwork orange is actually about the orange president. Dun -dun all right, we're all done with that. Let's, uh, let's move on. Um, so another question sort of occurred to me, and this is uh, this will get us into discussions of the 21st chapter in the book, um, but also in the discussions of how the film presents the end. And it's a very simple question. The last line of the film is, "I and I was cured. Is he cured? Uh, it's a simple question, but a very complex one to uh, to answer. What do you think? Is he cured at the end? I'd say he's not an expert. <laughs> That's about where I'll go with that. <laughs> he's not exactly an expert in that. So, so is he cured? But do you like that last image of him uh, having sex and the other people turning, uh, sort of cheering him on, and he gets that he's he's able to slushy, uh, aka listen to Beethoven's Ninth. Is this a cure? Is this a moment of cure for him? And this brings us back to like how we view Alex's emotion or character's journey uh, over the course of this movie. Is this a return to his halcyon days of uh, rape and ultraviolence with his droogs, or is there something else in that image um, that that leads you to believe that there's going to be something different going on here? Um, I'm sort of either the experiment fails as I ask it, but what 
either the experiment failed or he died and this was his like hallucination right before the death hit. <laughs> I mean, that's really the only conclusion I can come to. Yeah, I Okay. Go ahead, Ben. So what I what I want to appeal to here is the DSM. And so if we think about what what actually classifies psychological disorder, I think it's mostly defined by is this trait or is this thing actually causing you difficulty in living your everyday life? And so so if we think about the the effect that Alex had of becoming sick and cowering over whenever he tried to engage in aggressiveness or listen to music, like obviously that's gone. And I don't think before he really saw those behaviors as causing a problem for him in his life. So, you know from that perspective, I think, yeah, I mean, you could almost say that he was cured because he no longer has that sort of restraint. But also from the other side, if you take Jim, your perspective about the free will question, I think the, the resolution there, like probably what we're supposed to draw from the film is that he's been given back his ability to choose. Now, obviously from my perspective, I think that what we see is a, a world in which free will doesn't exist. Um, and so like he was just really honestly just put back to his original state that he was most comfortable with, but in so many ways and in so many layers, I do think, yes, like you could probably see him as being cured. Um, and in the long term, of course, if we take the book's perspective, which is another layer to add on, he was cured honestly by given a better seat in society and having his socioeconomic class raised just a little bit so they didn't have to have that impulse quite as much to engage in certain types of behaviors. So, yeah, I mean, there's like a bunch of different perspectives to look at it from. But in all of those perspectives, I think we could say that he was cured unless you think that the cure was supposed to be taking away the things that we don't like about him and leave only the things that are good. You know what I mean? Like that's the only way in which you could possibly think, I believe he wasn't cured. <laughs> right. Right. I think it's in that last image. I think it's essential to realize that the woman is on top um, and that she is that there's a, I, I, I don't necessarily think that that is a non-consensual act that's occurring there. And so in that sense, I think that's a really important aspect of that final image of the movie and that she does, I, you know, I- We, we now know- she seems She seems to be enjoying it. We now have the image for the detoxifying masculinity. It's, it's like being written by a woman. That's how you <laughs> detoxify masculinity. So that's great. I think Byron and I were sort of uh, designing a t-shirt for Deadly Analysis merchandise a little while ago. And it was Deadly Analysis detoxifying masculinity one podcast at a time. And we'll have the final image of a clockwork orange where she's riding him and uh that that would be that would be the the final uh idea of what what women empowerment is. women empowerment is sexy as fuck okay like, like let's just be honest okay Not, <laughs> no disagreements there happy to, <laughs> happy to agree like retweet um yeah i don't yeah. know i think i'm i'm still left up in the air about that i might have to go back and review that scene a few more times just to to fully appreciate the the women being in power and, and make sure that my understanding and appreciation of the scene artistically is where it needs to be yeah, you definitely have to rewind it a few times, pause on certain images. I think that's all this necessary academic work to correctly uh, understand this film. 
<laughs> um, and and make sure you put it on the t-shirt as well. That will never... you really you really made me realize that it was, that is a positive ending, isn't it? Fuck. I think so. Like I think that the book and the film almost accidentally come to a very similar conclusion. Uh, the twenty-first chapter. Okay, so for people who don't know. Uh, ben, you seem to know this much, maybe much better than I. Can you sum up the 21st chapter? I, I, I could probably do it, but it's been a while since I've read the book. But do you want to do you want to? Yeah, do yeah. I, I can give it a shot. And like I fully admit it, it's been a few years, so I'm not going to be able to cite it word for word. But essentially what happens is that we come into Alex's life a few years later. Um, he's getting off of his job and he, he goes to like this pub or something like that. And he's sitting there reading a newspaper, having a beer, and he happens to see one of his old friends or one of his old droogs, I think, there in the bar. And so they have, like, this quick conversation or whatever like that that seems, like, totally innocuous. Um, but the the impression given is that the past has been squarely put behind him, that he seems to be fairly healthy. He's not having any, like, these crazy thoughts. Um, he's definitely not in the position that he used to be. He's not going out at night robbing people, raiding people, killing people. Um he just seems to be a, a normal nine to five stiff, right? And going to have a drink after work. I mean, he seems to be fully, completely reformed. Um, and my impression of that might be inaccurate. Of course, like I would be willing to have any of our commentators come in if they've read the book and, and talk about how I'm totally off base. But that was my impression is that he just became like a normal dude, right? He, he seems to be fully integrated is what the, uh, was, the overall point seems to be. That was my impression as well. Shayra, do you want to jump in on the 21st chapter? Yeah, I mean, it, he seemed to just turn into what we all do. And and this goes back to the original theme that I was talking about in the beginning where, you know, old people getting scared of the youth and they're all taking over and they're all rebelling and ah, and then guess what? They become fat old fucks too. <laughs> and, and the story continues. And this has been repeating throughout history forever and ever. <laughs> yeah, those, those kids with their long music and loud hair. Um, it's, I'm gonna read something from IMDb. Anthony Burgess was raised a strict Roman Catholic even though he has an obsession with the tarot. Uh, he originally wrote this novel uh, as a parable about Christian free will and forgiveness. His take on it was that to be a true Christian, one had to forgive the most horrifying acts, something Burgess knew only too well, having seen his wife be assaulted and beaten by American soldiers during World War II. This attack resulted in a miscarriage and a lifetime of gynecological troubles for his wife. So I think that the final chapter of A Clockwork Orange where Alex is basically normal is this parable about forgiveness, about how after, even after the worst um, offenses that one can turn out to lead a normal life, which is certainly something that in our canceled society today or canceling society today, we uh, may disagree with. Um, and this, you know, that sort of returns us to some of the, the questions and, and discussions that we had before. But I certainly think that the film ends up uh, suggesting that Alex is not going to return to his his life of rape of an, an ultra violence, and that also starts in Act Two when we see Alex having some interest in being good even before he has the procedure. 
um, there's there's the chaplain character that ends up being a uh, a sort of he's the one the chaplain character ends up saying um, that Alex doesn't have a choice objecting to the procedure and even helping Alex along even though Alex seems to take all the wrong lessons from Christianity um, wanting to be a Roman rather than the Christ figure well uh, you know etc etc et so um man like that's yeah, that's so ahead. fantastic I, I yeah we haven't really talked about any other religious stuff like or, or at least in depth and i really appreciate that you read that because um from the story perspective i think that makes so much sense right like he could almost you could almost put him in the place of the writer uh no pun intended really i mean honestly where you know this horrible person comes into his life and does this terrible thing um but that ultimately he needs to sort of take that turn the other cheek perspective because redemption can occur for the greater good um and as much as i do really enjoy the the scenes where we have you know five uh crucified jesus's sort of lined up in a, in a dancing number or whatever it's quite interesting to see that sort of imagery in that sculpture in alex's room um it, I, obviously like from from our discussions on antichrist and the witch i you know i i might appeal a little bit to the the sacrilegious from time to time but i do think there is utility in some of these teachings right um you know, I, I think one big lesson, or at least one interesting narrative that we can take from this movie is the importance of having sort of these these masculine, quote-unquote, stereotypical traits, but within certain boundaries. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, if you layer on sort of this forgiveness perspective, that's almost the exact opposite, because you're sort of letting that happen. And I don't, I don't know if they really, I don't know, like maybe Kubrick didn't emphasize that nearly enough, because it makes it seem like all these softer, more submissive traits are are worse than being more masculine and aggressive and just maybe a little bit um a little bit like what we might consider evil i don't know like they didn't they didn't emphasize that nearly enough but then again i think it's fair to say that kubrick wasn't telling probably the same story that burgess was yeah there are certainly differences but it's see i i just think that they the the idea that alex starts in a place of violence and horrible violence you know just a, a a totally shit person and that there is a a sort of redemptive arc to his character over the course of the film um and over the course of the book seem to suggest that the film and the book are ending on similar points although i think you're right that you're you're right to to, to draw a distinction between the film and the book but the fact that there is a kind of redemptive arc for him is is really uh it's challenging too especially from a 21st century perspective where we're canceling people uh where one sin made publicly can ruin your life um and that's well, I, yeah, another that, thing that seems to come up um so i i noticed this throughout history uh people in power uh when it comes to their um ideas of how to deal with poor people um, one of their things is to keep them working and don't let them get bored or they'll do sins. That's been a constant mantra for freaking eons, I swear to God, <laughs> all throughout history. You see these like rules and, and these ideas from the uh, bourgeois types uh, saying that poor people need things to do because they, if, if you don't give them something to do, they'll just act out. Um, and there is that bit of an element of is there boredom to what is going on with these kids? Um, 
And uh, do they have that hope for a future or do they not want to live the life of their parents? And you see this also pop up in SLC Punk, uh, you know, where this idea of like, I don't want to grow up to be like you, dad probably is going to end up growing up to be like his dad. <laughs> but, you know, this this idea of like, no, I'm I'm not going to just work nine to five and 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 hate my life and and be miserable and bored and tired all day. And then you end up doing it anyway. Um, and, and we're more and more realizing that this overworking, at least as far as American society, society is concerned, this overworking of, of people and this, uh, this idea that if we keep busy, it keeps us from doing horrible things. We, we've seen a couple of cases where that's not exactly what happens. Sometimes the overworking causes people to flip out and, and go after their, their place of business and, and after people they work for, um, so there definitely is this element of uh, work uh, for poor people. And, and is that what actually reforms Alex? Is this what Burgess thinks is going to reform him is just give him, give him a job and he'll be fine. Like, is that his solution? Perhaps, but that would put him certainly like if, if we take this, this, uh, this quote, um, at its face, then it would, then yes, that would be sort of a part of idea of how how to um, keep people occupied. But uh, at the same time, I think that Burgess, if, if Burgess is aiming, and I think he is for something higher and more spiritual and something that, that fits his sort of religious point of view, um, then there's there's larger questions there and it's more it's it's less about how you occupy your time and more about who you are as a person and 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 how your soul within Burgess's uh, religious framework uh, the the condition of your soul within Burgess's religious framework at least that's how that's how I view it um, I did want to also bring up this really interesting discussion that uh, that, that Byron brought up once, I, I guess I'm just going to quote Byron all uh, podcast long, um, is that, you know, he, he differs with, uh, with Burgess. I think he's off base. Uh, forgiveness is more your own peace of mind. Hate and vengeance is a way to carry. And I think that that's an interesting, you know, that that's also a, a perception within Christian religious point of view that, vengeance and hate are the things that that hurt you more than they hurt the other person and that that makes a lot of sense to me burgess's idea also makes a lot of sense to me like it's a it's a big religion it's a big world and where you know all of these ideas could kind of fit in that at least um, there, okay i i, I want to not to, not to interject i hope i'm not being rude but i, no. I do want to say also i do want to say also just to to other societies and cultures credit that that's also a buddhist idea and i think that probably predates christianity a little bit not just just to be fair true uh, true, right? true, like, true. Yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. Was a buddhist there it was probably buddha who said that like um revenge is like swallowing poison and expecting your enemy to die or, or some shit like that. Right. Like it's, it's something like that, but the, the teaching mm -hmm. is exactly the same. Like that holding on to that, that anger does more damage to you than it does to the other person. Now, of course, this is a lesson that pervades through time, but I think it's also been proven true through current social psychology. And I think, the perspective there is that the the point of the criminal justice system ought to be around reform rather than punishment, like re retributive justice really 
or at least in my perspective and my interpretation doesn't make a lot of sense right so if you're if you're putting someone in jail just to punish them it seems to be a waste of tax dollars and and like i mean maybe maybe the the wronged party and the wronged family has some right to to have that other person suffer the way that they've suffered but you know again like i don't know like maybe not i mean that uh, for for society as a whole that doesn't seem to be really really beneficial and um you know something i would say there too is that you know we have uh kind of like the death penalty right like the ultimate punishment for people who commit murder in some states and so on and so forth like obviously we can make mistakes in the people in and in, in who we're throwing into the prison system and who we want to get revenge against um so not even just from that perspective or the fact that we make mistakes about who we're supposed to be hurting because we think they hurt us but as a society as a whole it would make so much more sense to listen to the people and understand who they are and figure out why they're taking the actions that they're taking and try to make them better people as opposed to just saying well you punched me therefore i'm going to punch back which is almost the direct quote from something that we saw in the movie like why not be able to punch back um anyway yeah so Yes. <laughs> yeah. Restorative, restorative justice is what you're talking about. And those are, uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of scholarship in criminal justice studies about restorative justice. And a lot of that is very interesting and completely antithetical to what we're doing. Um, and that kind of restorative criminal justice system would be you know, I think something that within the religious framework with which Burgess is working with, I think would be an interesting, uh, interesting discussion. Unfortunately, I'm not as versed on the that scholarship as I should be to be able to, to start talking about it uh, with any intelligence right now. Um, I will say this, though, as much as I'm not about actually acting out vengeance and blah, blah, blah. God damn, I love vengeance movies. They are my fucking favorite movies i don't know why uh like dude it, this is this is a debate that jim and i are having currently not to derail i know i know no, we want to no, have, we, we wanna have some structure here but him and i have had this discussion about john wick um whereas i i fully appreciate that this man went on this huge killing spree because someone hurt his dog whereas jim i think thinks it's unethical to have that kind of violence uh sort of uh raised up on a pedestal in movies so not to <laughs> no i, I <laughs> think that's an awesome stuff no that's yeah, an that's awesome cool. conversation i love the conversation this is one of my favorite topics i think we should definitely delve into it at some point uh there is a movie that i need to add to our list that is probably my favorite movie from last year it was called revenge Yes, it's a revenge movie. It's called fucking oh, it's a revenge. revenge movie, all right. <laughs> and it's fantastic. I've ever seen. It's so fucking good. If you guys have not seen Revenge, go see it. But I love vengeance movies. They are a treat for me. I don't know if in my personal life, uh, it's it's my my moral. But is that weird to like really enjoy media that has this element? of vengeance when you're not actually for that morally speaking i, I mean it does this speak to the, you know the idea that marilyn manson was blamed for shootings and stuff it's like you know what sometimes i just like music sometimes i just like movies sometimes i just like books it doesn't mean i want to go and just because i like friday the 13th that i want to go to a campground and like slash up some teenagers you know maybe there's some element of entertainment some of this shit we talk about maybe it doesn't have to all be seriousness i don't know <laughs> like 
Not to mention, I, I do feel like one of the greatest movies. I absolutely love Old Boy, and, and as a as a more classical type of horror, I, that's that's inherently a revenge flick. And God, if that's not one of the best movies that I've ever seen in this, that genre. is in my top five of all time. It is the best. Uh, I I I do kind of like the vengeance stuff. Sorry, guys, and and in a way, this is why I love the juxtaposition, right? Of you know, Alex and the panning out and then the writer and then panning out, you know, the vengeance uh, that the right and, and he's getting off on it, too. Like he's cranking the volume and he's like, oh, <laughs> he's just so happy to play the music loudly. He knows exactly what's happening. He doesn't have a camera in there to see what's happening to Alex. He has no idea, but he knows. And he's just getting off on cranking the volume up louder and louder. And it's, uh, I don't know. It, I kind of appeal to the the writer in that film <laughs> i don't think he deserved to be in jail let's like all band together and save the writer save you know? the writer we'll make that the, <laughs> uh, the next t-shirt in our deadly analysis <laughs> unless it's the writer unless it's the writer in lady in the water um let's not save that guy oh, oh no. no adam no you adam brought that out for noah oh boy um all right, let's. Uh, so we we're at. Uh, you know, this is going to be one of our longer podcasts, and as well it should be because uh, Clockwork Orange is is some um, some some deep film. I want to let's. I want to run through a few notes. This is just some technical merits of the film that uh, feel free to just un go ahead and unmute your mics and just interrupt me if you want to go off on any of these things. So I'm just gonna sort of list these things and start and, and give brief notes about them before we go to our final thoughts. Um, but feel free to, if you wanna expand on anything that I have, uh, that I'm bringing up, please do. Um, let's talk about the language in this film. Uh, Anthony Burgess was a linguist. He essentially made up a language for this film. It's called NADSAT, N-A-D-S-A-T. And it is a sort of combination of slangish Russian and English with with a little bit of uh, weird English phrases and the language of this film makes it incredibly interesting and incredibly charming and and sort of a, a film that kind of takes on a life of its own um I'm gonna talk can I, can I give you oh, a hint of please, how yeah, uh, can I give you a hint on how I remember what it's called uh it's please. it's so stupid um so if you sit on your nads you say, you start talking funny, so you you nads that, and then you start so talking a little on funny. My nads, and then I said, <laughs> you started talking. <laughs> oh, slushy, that. Yeah, okay. Uh, the art direction of this film, the film's milieu is completely out of time. It's like this postmodern, futuristic, weird world. It's filled with sexual references, disembodiment of the female form, weird furniture choices chairs that look like eggs go ahead shara but it predicted that us women would have purple and pink and blue and orange hair and and uh As that, you do, right? and that our lighting might be slightly interesting in our living rooms you know <laughs> uh ben do you want to jump in on the art direction before i keep going no, no, go ahead. I'm still thinking right. back to situations about NADSAT, right? Like, I'm, I'm just looking <laughs> over my life now. Did you sit on your NADS? <laughs> um, uh, the music, I think the classical music sort of lends the film kind of a jaunty irony. 
uh, classical music. It's not actually all Beethoven. Some people might not know, but classical music sort of get it, it adds to this mise-en-scene of an out-of-time world. Cinematography, you talked about this a little bit, Shayra. The images are stark, and then Kubrick sort of pulling in and pushing out on these on these static scenes. And then the acting and the performances. Malcolm fucking McDowell. Uh, this this is literally one of the most committed performances I have ever seen in my life. Have I ever seen an actor who is more committed to his character or more uh, just completely free and, and uninhibited? That is what really good acting is. And that is what Malcolm McDowell brings to this role. So I just wanted to talk. We have to at least mention how this felt. We talked a lot about the themes, but we have to at least compliment some of the filmmaking. Um, anything also stand out to you guys? I, we I have to Malcolm McDowell out. Uh, Malcolm McDowell out. Uh, so apparently when this film was made, um, when Malcolm McDowell was supposed to be put in, Stanley Kubrick didn't want anybody else but him. That was his guy. They were considering Mick Jagger at one point, but uh, they were like, he was like, that is my guy. And what's funny is uh, Malcolm McDowell agreed to it thinking it was Stanley Kramer uh, from the Mad, 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 Mad world uh, that was doing the film. And, um, you know, some of his friends, uh, Malcolm McDowell's friends from other movies were like, oh, no, no, it, this is Stanley Kubrick. Uh, here's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and so he wasn't even like fully in or understanding what he was about to create. He, he didn't really know much about what he was going to create. But I think what really added to what he brought forth with this character, um, they stopped looking at scripts at a certain point and just carried around the book. They were really focused on the dialogue from the book. Um, and so, so many people will talk about adaptions of books and like how uh, movies have to be different and, and books are, are not gonna be adapted perfectly to a movie, blah, blah, blah. And you hear this argument constantly and so many people are like, the book is better than the movie, blah, 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 blah. But I think a huge part of what made this film work was that they accepted the book and its beauty and, and accepted its dialogue. And they kind of had to because that language. Um, but I think fully embracing that book really added to the element to this film. And the fact that Malcolm McDowell was actually reading from the book in a lot of his performances, as opposed to reading from a script. Uh, I don't know. I feel like that might've added to this. And, and Jim, you and I were talking about this pre-show, but we've noticed that he hasn't really done that much of greatness since this character. <laughs> and maybe there's something to be said about taking the adaptions from a book seriously and really fully accepting what the novel had in mind uh, when it, putting forth a character you're about to become. So, um, well, he's, I, made some, he's made some wonky choices and maybe there just hasn't been a film like well there hasn't been a film like a clockwork orange since a clockwork orange like nothing compares very few films compared to this film um so i i would i don't know i don't know what has sort of happened to him um and it, you know it's never for me to say but this was definitely the everest of his career and he's he is so amazing in this movie um and i yeah, think i don't think it's, it's really important 
Go ahead. Uh, well, let me. I'll make one quick point before before I pass it on to you, Ben. Is I think that technical filmmakers like Kubrick, and Kubrick is more of a technical filmmaker than he is an actor's filmmaker. Technical filmmakers like Kubrick need actors like Malcolm McDowell who are able to imbue the character with more of a life than Kubrick is able to to direct. Um, I think that. Kubrick often pushes toward extreme facial expressions. We even see that in this movie. He pushes toward creating the perfect shot rather than creating the perfect acting performance. And I think Clockwork Orange, Malcolm McDowell, and The Shining, Jack Nicholson, and I know somebody is going to disagree with me in the chat, Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Those are, those are really good actors doing really good performances in a technically focused movie. So I think it's really important to make the movie as a whole good by by having really good actors who are able to view these characters with with life of their own. Go ahead, Ben, please. Oh yeah. yeah. I was just gonna say like in, in in McDowell's defense, first of all, um I think one question that we look at whenever we examine the the quality of an actor is whether or not you believe their performance, right? Like this the stereotypical thing. It's like yes, I believed this performance. And I think that's absolutely true with McDowell here. It's like it never, never was there a point in the movie where I was like, yeah, I, I don't really believe this person. You know what I mean? And and that I think shines through, especially because of the weirdness in the dialogue and the specialized language and the surreal, the the surreal nature, I think, of this this film. Um, I totally believed what he was putting forward. Like, I think he fit perfectly. But again, like in in the defense of his career, I think there are a lot of great actors that kind of like peak sort of early. And and the, the landscape, I think, for the way that they get jobs is quite complex. And so like, I don't want to hold it against him that, you know, maybe nothing after A Clockwork Orange sort of stood out in terms of his performances as being even better than that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 quite complex, right? So I think... He was fantastic sure. in this role. He was totally believable. And I think that absolutely speaks to his quality, even if nothing after that had the the same sort of acclaim that this particular film did. You're, you're right, Ben. And I should probably kind of backtrack some of my, my, my criticisms. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the things you're offered. And if he's not offered a clockwork orange, then what can he do except you know, the, and we did get a couple recommendations in the chat that I didn't, I, I'm not familiar with, but, um, all right, folks, are we ready to go to final thoughts? Uh, uh, Shira, I'll let you close out. I'll start and Ben, uh, you can go after me. I love a clockwork orange. I think this is one of the best films. It's certainly one of the most interesting films that I've ever seen. I think it's one of the most important films of the 20th century uh, with regard to some of the questions it's bringing up with regard to violence, with regard to how we operate in a, a free society. I think the performances are amazing. I think the cinematography is amazing. I think in, in some cases it's just devilishly funny. I really love this movie. Uh, as, as I've said throughout the last two hours, um, I, I, I think that there are some criticisms to be had with the way it portrays women, whether or not this is a film that is, it's certainly skirting the line between satire and, um, and, and, and supporting the society that it's satire satirizing. It's difficult to tell in some cases and the good satires, it's really not always, it's not difficult to tell. So let's say 
very mild criticism even then i don't even believe what i'm just saying so i i love this movie it's a five out of five for me uh and a total recommend uh ben what do you think of a clockwork orange <sighs> how to follow that shit um i'm not gonna give it a five out of five <laughs> I do. Think it's, I, I think it's really good. It's going to be a recommend for me. Come too. on just... and join our five out of five club. <laughs> uh, hmm. Yeah, your 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 ratings are zero. <laughs> so I at the beginning of this, I said I was middling, um, and I, I want to make sure that like while I, I think the arguments here were good and the discussion was fantastic, I don't want I don't want to let my vodka and cranberry talk for me when I give this rating. And so I'm, I'm going to try to like pace myself a little bit and think this through. Um, I do think it was fantastic. Technically speaking, I really do like Kubrick as far as like his directorial influence on the film. Um, and I really don't want to let the book influence my decision here too much either. But I do think there was so much more that they could have done with the story. And then, and while there was sort of a similar um, tie-in like there at the end i think jim you made a really good point about that there probably was a little bit more that could have been done if he wanted to tell that same story that burgess told it really doesn't seem redemptive to me i think it does seem a little bit like dystopic um i really do see the the major theme of this film being you know there there are manipulations in society like evil things happen and yes they can be changed or whatever but you know it, when you when you manipulate free will um it sort of like turns out for the worst but there's really nothing you can do about it anyway because there's no free will to be had you know i i think the story is one in the film that sort of builds from act to act to become larger which is fantastic i love that i love the satire and there's just so much positive about this movie but i see the potential and i'm like I, I think it fell just a little bit short. Um, and not only that, like, of course, like my higher ratings, I generally reserve for things that speak to me personally. That's a little bit subjective, but it is what it is. So at the end of the day, I, man, and I know I'm probably going to get hate for this, but I, if I'm being honest with myself, if I'm being really honest with myself, I kind of want to give this a 3.5 out of 5 because I don't think the emphasis was placed where it needed to be placed. Um, in terms of giving it sort of like that larger narrative and playing to those deeper fears that we have. I don't necessarily know if this was intended to be a classic or like a true horror, but I do think there were some like, some like just this flaws in general about how they could have not emphasized the glorification of Alex as a person. I think, I think too much was done with the music and with the way that certain scenes were directed to make Alex seem like your buddy and your friend. Um, and to glorify the negative aspects of his personality. Um, and that was just too much at the forefront for me to give this like a larger rating from kind of like the narrative that I think it should have had. I don't know. That's really my main complaint is that too much emphasis was put on the glorification of Alex's evil traits and making him seem too, too much of a source of empathy, right? Like he was too much, too relatable too relatable because of his plight because like he made he was turned into a victim because the music played sort of like made the rape scenes and like the violence scenes uplifting um which i think just makes you want to relate to him a little bit more you know i don't know anyway yeah the, not to like blather on about that but at the end of the day i think it's going to have to be a 3.5 out of 5 just because of some of those narrative shortcomings all right allow me to squish that um so <laughs> The awesomeness of this film, uh, and I'm glad you actually brought this up just now because I get to say this now, and if you want to rebut it, please do. Um, 
one of the amazing aspects of this film is it brought into the question of, can we trust the narrator? Can we trust what they're saying? This was a breaking point in film and storytelling, right? Uh, and um, breaking down those walls, when you start to feel sick to your stomach about your own morality because of your own views of Alex's way of telling this story, um, you start to question your own morality. That's, that is the part of the brain warping awesomeness and the artistry of this film. Um, so when, when you have him saying stuff like when he goes to prison and he's like, uh, your humble narrator, when he describes himself and talks about how you're my only dear friends, my brothers left that, that actually care about me. And, and you want to say, I don't give a fuck about you, you raping, murdering asshole. And then I'm like, wait, I'm sticking around for the story though. <laughs> so in a way I'm appealing to, you know, I, he's, he's right. I am intrigued by his character. I am intrigued by his story. Fuck. Um, it's calling you out. It's calling out your humanity. It's calling out the things that interest you. It's talking about the violence and the sexuality that you are drawn to. Um, you know, when you start to see his view of the Bible, you're like, fuck, that's totally fucked. But goddamn, he has a different twist on it. Look at his perspective of art. He has an interesting, uh, interpretation of it all. <laughs> and, and it's, it's problematic, right? But in the same token, if you can tell a story properly with the right actor, with the right storyline, with the right words, you you too could possibly, you know, take the side of a, a murderous rapist. And it's, oh, it's a struggle, right? Like that's actually kind of the beauty of the film. It fucks with your head. And um, it's, I'm sure there are plenty of other movies that kind of fucked with your head in that way, but goddamn, this one does a really good job of it. Um, I don't know if you have a rebuttal to that, but goddamn, that's actually what what drew me to this film was that as a person who has actually struggled with these kinds of issues personally as a woman, uh, I'm somehow on the side of this guy? What the fuck and in a way even sexually attracted to him not okay but yeah i'm sitting there going yeah he's fucking he's kind of hot hey hey alex i'll i'll play with your snake any day <laughs> you know <laughs> that's not okay but that's that's how it's set up and structured and it, and it fucks with your head so it's kind of interesting it's a beautiful piece of art because of that to me um if you don't have anything to say to that uh Geez, the 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 direction, the writing, the sets are insanely inventive. The costumes, I mean, the fact that um, Malcolm was, uh, he did some kind of sport. I can't remember what it was now, but he was actually wearing his sporting gear when he came to the, the, the place to film stuff and... Stanley Kubrick saw that and was like, ah, that would be great for your gang costume. Just make sure to wear your jock strap over it. And then they did it and it worked out and it looked like a cod piece and it's fucking hilarious. Um, the the eyeball, bleeding eyeball cufflinks, like, God damn, the costumes are, are so inventive. Even just the fake eyelashes, just beautiful. Um, God damn, this movie is so beautiful, so inventive, so creative, and it 
makes you think. And every time I watch it, I see something new where I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Fuck, I didn't think of that. That's great. Um, and I'm probably going to look back at this show and wish I said more. But yeah, definite five out of five for me. This is this is my top. These are this is one of my top five of all time films. Uh, Old Boys is on there too. Just <laughs> just throwing that out there, Ben. Uh, but this is definitely one of my favorite movies, and uh, probably always will be. I've loved it since I first saw it back in I think I watched it finally in 2000. And I do consider it horror because it scared the shit out of me, especially when I found out that poor Malcolm actually had his eye cut from the device that was holding his eye, and he still has a permanent injury on his eyeball from this film. Um, so, it, it like, that's dedication, and uh, I appreciate all that it brought to us. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's the greatest movie ever. Please watch it. Goddamn. <laughs> it's certainly up there. It's one of the most, I think it's one of the most important films, but... Uh... All right, so thank you for joining us uh, here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast. We were talking about Clockwork Orange, one of our favorite films, one of our highest rated films in, in the history of the podcast. Join us next week um, where we will be talking about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This is a really interesting film um, that's, uh, well, well, we'll get into get into it. Um, if you enjoyed what you listened to and, and watched um, today, please feel free to give us a like, uh, subscribe, and uh, share us on all of the sites and hit us up on these social medias. Um, we will be talking about Girl Walks Home at Night, Alone at Night next week, but we'll also have some other content for you guys coming during the week. Uh, ben and I have our Deadly Analysis Shortcut series, which are a little more creative, and we also have two-minute reviews that we are posting, uh, usually on Wednesdays. Um, so we will continue to have those coming at you. Uh, thanks again for, for joining us. We really enjoyed Clockwork Orange, and we hope you did enjoy. I, we hope you enjoyed listening to this as well. So uh, have a good rest of the night. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>